The following podcast is a live recording of a radio show first broadcast by Fresh FM with assistance from New Zealand On Air. Fresh FM is a community access media station based in Te Tauihu, the top of the South Island, New Zealand. What would you do if you knew you were going to die or that someone you loved was going to die? Well, guess what? You are, and you do. No my hari mai, and welcome to Death Walker's Guide to Life, a euphemism-free show that deals with everything about death and dying you wish you knew but were afraid to ask. In it, we'll explore together how thinking and talking about death can help you live a life without regrets. Ko Kerry Sunderland Toku Inua. My name is Kerry Sunderland, and I'm the host and producer of the show, which is first broadcast on Fresh FM in Titoihu, the top of Aotearoa, New Zealand's South Island, and then available around the world on many of the major podcast platforms. Deathwalker's Guide to Life is produced with the support of the Tasman District Creative Community Scheme, so big thanks to them. And if you'd like to find out how to get involved or wish to support the show in other ways, please go to the website, which is deathwalkersguidetolife.com. And thank you for joining me for episode 14 of season 2 of Deathwalker's Guide to Life. In today's show, I'll be speaking with Frank Coopers, who is a urologist, surgeon and assisted dying practitioner. We'll be discussing his own experience of death as well as how he supports his patients at the end of their lives. But before I kōrero with Frank, it's time for the first bookend, Death in Print. In today's episode, I want to talk about the astonishing Australian author Jessie Cole. I've just finished reading her second memoir, which is called Desire, A Reckoning, which came out in August this year. Her publisher, Text Publishing, describes it as an unabashed, thrilling exploration of the very nature of desire, as well as a story about vulnerability and strength and loss and regeneration. So I've been raving about this book to a few friends and who are now keen to read it. However, as soon as I told them about it, I realised it would be a good idea for them to read Jessie Cole's debut memoir, Staying First. Not just because it precedes chronologically the events in Desire, but because I want to honour the author's journey by giving my friends the opportunity to really understand the trauma she was carrying when the story that's central to Desire takes place. And while she touches on her family tragedies in Desire, it's really the events that unfold in Staying that help the reader understand the trauma in an unforgettable, visceral way. Jessie Cole grew up in an isolated valley in northern New South Wales, not far from where I lived for 12 years. Her early childhood was full of creek swimming and barefoot free-range adventuring. That is, until her older half-sister takes her own life when Jessie is on the cusp of adolescence, and then her father, racked by pathological grief and mental illness, does the same thing several years later. Staying is the story of an adolescence bookended by the suicides of her half-sister and father, and the aftermath of these two appalling losses. It took Jessie, who was already a published author, with two successful novels under her belt, about 10 years to write Staying, and it is, as a result, imbued with the introspective depth of thought and compassion that you'd expect from a decade of processing and writing, reflection and rewriting. 
The result is a gentle, nuanced, compassionate tale. While it's incredibly sad and made me cry more than once, staying somehow transcends despair. I'd like to just read a short extract that illustrates its healing power. And this is uh, following a conversation that Jessie attempts to have with her brother. I tried to leave room for my brother's words, but he did not step forward to fill the gap. I wanted to give Jake space to be, but it always seemed that the space I allowed just became more space between us. Avoid where my words used to lie. I wanted to step up and fill in all the gaps to join together all the missing parts and tape up all the broken edges. I wanted to bridge the space where the unspoken lay, the abyss, the hidden chasm between him and me. Brother and sister. In his company, the clamour of the unspoken filled my ears, the clanking, banging, shifting machinery of all those words left unsaid. Two minds at work avoiding the unploughed ground. Weed-infested spaces have grown between us where all our secret sorrows were buried. Underground, deep underground. I wanted to burrow beneath the surface to those hidden chasms, but instead was solitary and still, waiting for the outstretched arms of my brother. I waited for Jake to reach out and give me balance, to hold me steady while I stepped forth and crossed that bridge between us. I saw the unspoken hovering between my brother's eyes, and I waited and waited for those small, unbroken moments when the chasm between us would be breached. As Tim Winton wrote in his front cover blurb for staying, it's a wounded, lovely, luminous book about grief, trauma, and the strange, healing potential of words. Staying a Memoir was longlisted for the 2019 Colin Roderick Award and shortlisted for the Victorian Premier's Literary Award for Nonfiction. Now, you may be wondering about my choice of text for this episode, being about suicide, when today's guest is going to be talking about assisted dying. But I see it as an opportunity to dissect the language we have used in the past about both. My teacher and friend Zenith Farago, who founded the Natural Death Care Centre in Australia and has conducted numerous death walker trainings across the globe, makes a deliberate point of not using the word suicide because it's archaic and inappropriate now that the act is no longer against the law. Instead, she says the person killed themselves or at the very least took their own life. Like Zenith and many other death walkers, I am an advocate of individual agency. That is, I believe in the right for an individual to decide for themselves when and how they wish to die. That is not to say that I don't acknowledge the huge amount of suffering that loved ones might feel when someone takes their own life, or that I don't discount what we need to do as a society to genuinely support those who are struggling with the job of living, whether it be because they have mental illness and addiction or are socioeconomically destitute. We can and must do more to ensure people who are struggling get help. But I believe years of not talking about suicide, in inverted commas, has been part of the problem and not the solution. For most of the 20th century and at least a decade into this one, it was the mainstream media's official policy not to publish any details of a death caused by one's own hand because the experts feared that media coverage led to copycat killing. As a result, up until about 2009, when there was a major Senate inquiry in Australia, a cloak of silence remained the official federal and state government policy. 
For me, it seems typical of the mainstream Australian culture in which I was brought up, which is not dissimilar to New Zealand Pākehā culture here, where we didn't learn how to express our emotions, where there was a stigma attached to those with a mental illness, where we didn't talk about death generally and definitely not suicide in particular. Instead, those of us who were a little unstable or vulnerable were just left alone to implode. Finally, in 2011, the Australian Press Council introduced new reporting standards on suicide, leading to more open media coverage in Australia, and I think New Zealand followed suit soon after. The support groups on the front line of mental health work supported this monumental shift, publicly agreeing that the stigma associated with suicide was a negative force. For the same reason, most people who are in favour of end-of-life choice also strongly oppose the use of assisted suicide and suicide when referring to physician-assisted euthanasia, preferring phrases like medical aid in dying or physician-assisted death. My guest today is Frank Coopers, who lives in Littleton near Christchurch. Frank was born and trained as a doctor in Germany. He came to New Zealand in 2003 with his wife and two sons after a stint as a locum, essentially as the island doctor, on an atoll in Tokelau. His wife is acclaimed journalist and author Anka Richter, who wrote her second book, 200 Days in Tokelau, about their experience there. But today, Frank is a urologist and urological surgeon at Christchurch Hospital and has recently become a certified assisted dying practitioner. So that's mainly what we're going to talk about today, as well as a few other things. Kia ora, Frank, and welcome to Deathwalker's Guide to Life. Kia ora, Kerry. Lovely to be here. Lovely to have you on the show. So as I ask most of my guests on Deathwalker's Guide to Life, I want to start by asking you to share with us your first experience of death. So my grandmother lived at the very end of her life after she had a bad stroke um, in our house and we um, yeah, were the main carers and we were all involved as a family in, in um, caring for her she was bedridden and um yeah we did all the nursing essentially ourselves and that was probably the closest and then at some she died and um that was a quite yeah natural and and um yeah natural event for me because uh, there was really not much left of her and seeing her bodily and mental demise and um, her dying was was just fine for me i was probably 10 at the time and shortly after that a classmate of mine died in a car accident that was obviously completely different but quite abstract for me because i couldn't really that was i think when i was 11 and it was hard for me to to just comprehend that that he just wouldn't be around anymore mm. yeah but that's what i what i remember from that time and I imagine that would have been an experience that taught you very quickly that it's not just old people who die. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, mm. yeah. And then suddenly the um, yeah, car fatalities and the road toll makes a complete different, um, has a completely different meaning when, when you have somebody that you know who has been part of that number that, that accumulates every year. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So did you always want to be a doctor? Was it something you aspired to do from a young age or 
Did you come to it? No, I rather wanted to be a veterinarian and I didn't get a place in the vet school, but I got a place in med school. So I started um, medicine and then I rather enjoyed that and yeah, <laughs> and just became a surgeon because I, I love um, fixing stuff. Um, and um, yeah, I'm a cancer surgeon. So that really, um, I really enjoy that part of my job. Yes, yeah. What attracted you in particular to the field of urology? Um, yeah, within surgery, there are various fields and, and urology is um, obviously kidneys, bladder, prostate and the main male um, genitalia, stones and all that stuff. And um, in urology, we really um, follow the patient. So we get the referral, we do all the diagnostics and do the treatment and the aftercare. So I have a lot of patients um, that I have known for, well, since I'm in New Zealand, because often they have some chronic stuff or even the, um, some of the cancers um, can be uh, followed quite well. Prostate cancer is, is a disease from being diagnosed to dying can be 10 to 15 years. So you have a very um, close patient contact and um, it's still big enough as a surgical field to yeah, get excited about the technicality of surgery. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's a chance to build relationships then with your patients, not just as a yeah. surgeon. And that's not always a standard thing, is it? Yeah, because a lot of um, surgical specialties, you just see the patient for for the surgery, and then then they get discharged, and that's about it. And in urology, quite often um, we see them again and again. Stone patients often come back and back, and so you really build a relationship with your patients, which I really enjoy. Yeah, lovely. But one of the, the realities, I guess, of building relationships like that and, and especially with uh, disease like cancer, that you often wis- witness terminal illness and death on a fairly regular basis. Is that, is that something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. so, so yeah. Um, probably at least two-thirds um, of my, my work is cancer. And a lot of these cancers um, are often not curable. And then we follow the patients through together with the oncologists, be it the medical oncologists with chemotherapy or the radiation oncologists. But usually we're involved until the end of life, um, especially with prostate cancer, obviously, as I mentioned before, that can take many, many years. Mm. Do you think it's been this experience of, you know, getting to know people and being with them for some time and then being with them towards the end of their life that has made you a supporter of euthanasia or or of assisted dying or have you has that been something you've always kind of intrinsically believed in and yeah, this is was probably the experience with my grandmother that um, if she had died a bit earlier um it would have been much nicer for her because um the last month of her life was really really miserable and she didn't enjoy that and when she finally died i was really relieved everybody pretty much was which is why there was there was grieving because you can imagine um somebody dying but when it happens and the sudden experience of the um yeah the the eternity of of somebody not being there anymore um is still shocking but um the suffering was was really miserable and, and experiencing that firsthand as a teenager um, was probably the foundation for that. Um, probably the other thing is that I want that for myself. And the idea that somebody else would tell me how I'm 
not allowed to die or to or have to die. I find that um, yeah, that's that's just not for me. And I have obviously with my professional career seen a lot of people being independent, having clear ideas of how they want to die. Because we, I talk a lot with patients about death when when we know that uh, we can't cure the cancer. And then, um, despite the fantastic palliative care system that we have, um, often or sometimes it's it's really miserable. Yes, mm. yeah. I actually managed to find a piece you wrote for an opinion piece you wrote for the Otago Daily Times in August 2020, where you said that you are often surprised that approaching death is often not your patient's main concern. It's more concern about the suffering or the or what will happen to them towards the end of the life rather than the death itself yeah it's it's the um loss of control um it's yeah the fear of of pain and and uncontrollable misery yeah and, and to lose all agency that is um often a major concern for patients yeah at least in my experience yeah yeah, and it's often a driving motivation for those who support assisted dying, isn't it? That you know, to give patients autonomy over their own bodies. Yeah, yeah, yeah I think so. Yeah. So, if you can just go back to when, if you can recall, the t- around the time when the legislation was first, you know, put forward, and how were you involved, if at all, in the campaign leading up to the referendum? Yeah, so I was, um, as you mentioned with that uh, piece in the Otago Daily Times, um, I was a bit of a campaigner for it because there was um, a slightly misleading um, lobbyism um, from the New Zealand Medical Society where they said that the vast majority of, of doctors in New Zealand are against it. And that's not my experience. And um, I think that um, because there was a bit of an outrage amongst doctors when that was put out and then the uh, New Zealand Medical Association, which is only a small fraction of doctors in New Zealand anyway, mm. and it's more possibly um, conservative doctors. And and it was almost 50-50, so it wasn't a vast majority. And then just from um, communicating with my colleagues, um, I would think that probably the majority were for assisted dying. And so I thought that I have, should speak up to, to set that right because there was some very emotional campaigning from church groups and everything with quite some misinformation, at least in my opinion. So I thought that I um, should speak up for it. Yes. Yeah, I think actually I did uh, find some research that showed that pretty much, you know, across the whole population support for assisted dying since 2000 has averaged at around 68%. And in the end, I think it was about 65.9 who voted yes. Yeah. With interestingly much higher proportion here in the top of the south and mm-hmm. and in the on the ta- in the Tasman West Coast electorate as well. So of course it got passed and became law from the seventh of November two thousand and twenty-one onwards. So I, I'm just interested in did you decide pretty much when you know before the referendum was passed or when the legislation came into effect? When did when did you go? I think I would like to put my hand up to help to work with patients to to offer this service. Yeah, I didn't want to be um, a hypocrite and campaigning for it and saying, oh, but I don't want to do it. So, um, but I, I really feel that this is something, um, if I can do that for my patients or help them or be available for other patients as well, 
um, if, if I believe that this is something that should be done, somebody obviously has to do it. And, and so, yeah, I put my hand up. It took me a while to just go through the process, which is actually not too cumbersome. And there are some learning modules that you have to, to do online and then you can become a practitioner. But it's just a busy life that came came in between. But from the very beginning, I was um, keen to, to put my hand up as well. Yeah. Yeah. Is there a shortage of doctors available or as far as you know, or is it? Pretty much. Yeah. I th- well, um, yeah, I think the short answer is is, is yes. Um, it would be probably easier if there were some more. But if um, a patient wants to go down that route, um, there are doctors available to do that. Mm. If there were more, it probably would all be a bit faster. And um, the, the um, doctors wouldn't have to possibly travel. But it is always possible for anybody in New Zealand to to go down that path, there will be a doctor available. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Well, that's good news to hear. So, obviously, you've fairly recently acquainted yourself with those modules <laughs> in preparation for your yes. certification. <laughs> so, um, I'm interested, because you've got that international perspective, not only, you know, uh, training in Germany, but also working in the Pacific Islands, how you think our legislation, you know, do you have any comments to make about how our legislation works in comparison to other places around the world and and yeah so our legislation in new zealand is probably the most conservative of to some degree the most conservative um worldwide with regards to the entry criteria or eligibility criteria it's pretty close to what is done in oregon and the united states the united states is um, legislated by states and oregon is a state that has that and has had it for quite a while but it's similarly restrictive um, Belgium, the Netherlands and Switzerland are way more open for that and have uh, bigger numbers and, and have big experience as well. But it's probably not bad to start off very restricted and then and then um, it can still be decided whether it should be opened further. Yeah. But it's hard for people who don't fit the criteria and then um, that, um, and I know that from patients, they feel really uh, treated unfairly that they're not included what about because a lot of i saw a map a while back that showed where uh assisted dying is available around the world i can't remember and maybe you might know what's it has it has is it available anywhere in the pacific islands as far as you know or is it mainly the sort of european British? no i don't think that it's yeah. in the islands because yeah. the islands are very Religious, christian yes and obviously yeah. the churches are almost by definition, um, very against it. And um, it's a, assisted dying is a bit of a first world thing. Um, in the islands, the health system, um, if somebody's got cancer, um, yeah, I think it's, it's just, just not available and, and just the access to health is, is a bigger problem. So yes. they concentrate on other stuff. So you mentioned just previously that you will be working both with your your existing patients and and perhaps other patients as well. But is it primarily, do you imagine that you'll be offering assisted dying services to patients that you see with urological diseases and cancers? Um, No, I think I will be assigned patients. um, And um, usually um, the patients, well, or generally, and that is a very hard rule, the patients need to approach a doctor about it they cannot it's not for the doctor to suggest that this is an option 
that's a very hard rule and, and needs to be and i think this is really important um that that, that doctors understand that and uh, and really go with that um so i would think that most of the times the gps are the um, first port of call and then um even if the gps are not involved and probably the majority of gps are not involved and it's they will have to refer the patient to the assisted dying hotline that's no 800 number or you can go online or refer them directly and then they will be assigned an attending medical practitioner and then there is a second opinion practitioner um who has to um yeah validify that the patient is um, a new zealand citizen or permanent re- resident uh, over 18 that they're suffering from a permanent illness that will um the life expectancy is is under six months and then there, there is an advanced state of, of physical decline and that there is unbearable suffering and and that they, and that's the other thing they need to be competent to to make that decision and then also and that's probably the most difficult in my opinion because all these are pretty um factual things that um suffering is, is more individual but that is up to the patient to decide um pain is pretty clear when when you see the amount of painkillers um but the coercion is is could be very difficult to assess to, to see uh, the patients are doing this really because they want it or is there a family um that is pushing or is the patient just worried being a burden and yes. this i know that this is a big driver and i think for me that would be a valid driver however um it, it shouldn't be the reason to to end your life prematurely because you don't want to be a burden to somebody else yeah so it's quite complex then to do you see family as well do you interview family or is it just the reports of the of the person the patient themselves so essentially as a in my case now i've only got experience as a as a second opinion um you you get the files the medical files just as an objective measure i can log into the hospital system and and look at everything i can get in contact with um, doctors who know the patient to get more information and then um when i arrange a face-to-face appointment i would encourage that support person and whanau and family are around to to get get an idea about the whole picture and the support and how the decision is made uh, you mentioned earlier that you think palliative care can do a lot of good and be really supportive of a patient. But there is some, it's, it's interesting that Hospice New Zealand has official position, I think, well, last time I looked, it was that they weren't necessarily in favour of the assisted dying legislation. Where do you think that, yeah, the relationship is between palliative care and and assisted dying? Is it a case that sometimes people might not have access to the palliative care that they really need and you can support no i think or? yeah i think well palliative care is stretched there's no doubt yes. but um with the latest numbers in new zealand so um i think um so the, the legislation has been active for a year and 214 new zealanders have had an assisted death and i think about um, more than 75 percent had been receiving palliative care mm. at the time that they applied for assisted dying so and, and the palliative care team is fantastic but it involves um mainly strong painkillers that's codeine morphine oxycodone and, and gabapentin 
And while these painkillers work reasonably well, usually the pain is not completely gone, and they come with side effects. So you need to be on laxatives, and um, morphine can make you nauseous. You need to take anti-nausea medication. So it's it's not that you just take the painkillers and then your quality of life is reinstituted. You're still dying of a disease that that um, is is still painful walking can be difficult. So if you're just lying in bed and you get the painkillers, um, it might be fine, and, but you, you might be struggling to hold a proper conversation and when you're on uh, on all these high dose painkillers. So yes. although they're doing a fantastic job in controlling pain. Um, they're still suffering, at least mm. in my experience. Yeah. And there are some instances where it's not possible really to address the pain in, in a satisfactory way for people. Yeah, I guess especially if, if it's a kind of neurologic nerve pain, if, if nerves are affected directly by the cancer, it's a pretty awful pain. Mm. Um, people have had shingles and now it's, um, it's, it's pretty bad, yeah. So I guess it's probably too early to say, but... How do you imagine your relationship with the patient who chooses to end their life might change as you embark with them on their final journey? And and I think you made the point in that Otago Daily Times article that people might sign up for assisted dying and then might just let it, it, the disease run its natural course anyway. It's not necessarily that, you know, once they know they can, they might not necessarily go ahead with it. So it's about... Yeah, and that's the thing that with, with, with the agency. So when you're accepted for assisted dying and you know that you can set a date and and leave your life and end your life, it's on your terms. And if palliative care works and you still have quality of life, um, then then you don't need it. But it's your decision. And you don't have to worry that life gets really miserable because um, you can end it um, if you want to. I think that's that's the biggest difference. And there are numbers from, I think, from Belgium. Um, that, And I haven't got the exact numbers, but about 20% or so of patients who are accepted that don't go through with it because palliative care is doing a fantastic job. And you mentioned earlier, too, that we've got fairly conservative uh, legislation here and that potentially over time, I guess, there will be a period of years maybe before it's reviewed and there might be further discussions about what it might change. But I I, I know a, a big thing is that it you have to be mentally competent. And that's right up to the day of, of the procedure, isn't it? It's like... Yeah. Yeah, so a, that rules out people with dementia. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you can't act on advanced directive or anything. Um, and, and I think that's probably a good thing because who knows, um, because if somebody hasn't got the mental... Um, ability to make that decision it's very difficult because it's something that we can think about uh, while we're healthy and fine this is what we want but you can only um, make an informed decision once you're facing the problem once you are facing a disease that will kill you and once you're in pain and and planning for that um, while you're not affected by it um, doesn't doesn't really work. So I think it's important that that this decision is really only made by people who are in the situation and can make the decisions. However, if you made the decision and you have um, brain metastasis from the cancer and um, it gets really difficult, and then um, the day comes and um, 
you might have had a seizure or something and you wake up again but you're not um fully there it's it's very difficult um because the, nothing has changed but um end game is still the same the patient will still die and and that's that's obviously difficult to to assess um, but i think being conservative um, in new zealand with this approach is the right way to go so you mentioned at the beginning that once you've told a patient that they've got stage four cancer that they or terminal cancer that you start conversations with them about death and and dying has that been something that you've developed the capacity to do naturally or is is there particular training about how to have those sorts of conversations because it's not it's not something in my experience that every every doctor is able to do is to have those really honest caring compassionate conversations about the reality of what is happening. Yeah, no, there's nothing that that um, in, in med school that you would would learn about. At least not not when I went to med school, and nothing in the in the training either. There are fantastic books, um, Kula Ross, and, and and great books about dying, grief, and everything. And um, well, I usually just ask my patients um, when when we broach that subject, "What are you worried about?" and then um, hopefully if there's time they just open up and then we can just address the worries but essentially i think it's it's mainly that question and that needs to be a very open question what are you worried about it's, it's sometimes surprising what people are worried about and questions are a great way to start to yeah yeah so what are some of the surprising mm. things that you've discovered without obviously going anywhere near pe- people's patient confidentiality well, the pet this one well, this was an issue that's the biggest problem oh well my dog is only four years old and and um, that's I'm, I'm not worried about my death but what do i do with my dog and i thought wow this is um, well it's a valid concern <laughs> but i thought um looking at your own mortality and and everything um that this would be somewhere in the further down category but for, for that patient it was his main burning issue Mm. And I said, oh, well, it's good that you've got some time. You can sort that out. Mm. And then um, and if there are any other worries, I said, no, otherwise I'm fine. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. But, yeah. A sign, of, a sign of his love for his pet, hey? Yeah, yeah, yeah quite yeah. beautiful. Yeah. So have you got a personal philosophy about, obviously, agency is one of the things, but how you would like to walk towards your own end of life, the natural and sacred end of your life? Is it? What would you, if you could define how you would do your own journey well? What would it look like? Well, it's always this, and, and that's actually something that, that um, I ask my patients as well: is how do you want to die? And I think this is something, and, and this is kind of probably yeah, <laughs> exactly what your podcast is about: that we, we should think about how do we want to die. And usually, it's this falling asleep surrounded by the loved ones, and it's um, this thing that falling asleep and waking up did. It usually doesn't <laughs> doesn't work that easily and that well um uh, a colleague of mine worked in holland for a while and he told me years ago that he was invited to a death ceremony by somebody who had cancer and was um, was was accepted for assisted dying and um, it was on pain and on morphine and, and all sorts of painkillers but uh, was accepted and he held his own eulogy and they had a fantastic party and he said, okay, and tomorrow it's my time. And, and he had never, I've never experienced that either. And I guess we will um, with the numbers and the time going by the past now, 
with this legislation, we will experience these these uh, different ceremonies. Um, yeah, but that would be um, a way how I want to go. That um, have a big party first. <laughs> yeah, no, my death ceremony um, with me being present and and then. Um, yeah, indeed, fall asleep after taking the medication, and and that's it. Yes, that would be my ideal way. Yeah, 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 and minimizing the pain in in that process of of doing. That. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay, so once you wake up dead, what <laughs> what song? <laughs> Actually, you could probably say this for that end of that ceremony when you're still there. But this is my other question that I ask all my guests on the show, and that is, what song would you want played? Just and again, the first song that pops into your mind at your end of life celebration, <laughs> your funeral or your wake. Have you got a uh, would it to be David Bowie, I guess. <laughs> Fitting would be Ashes to Ashes, I guess. <laughs> um, yeah, I want to be cremated. I'm pretty sure about that. Um, yeah, no, it would be would be David Bowie. He's my big big hero. Yeah, any particular David Bowie song or? Major Thomas is mm. still one of my oh, Space Odyssey. Yeah, yeah that's, that's um, yeah. Awesome, that awesome. Because he's leaving <laughs> out in space. It's pretty cool. Yeah, fantastic. I'm 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 putting all these songs into a playlist on Spotify. So I'm delighted you said oh, that fantastic. song. So I'll put it. I'll put, <laughs> I look forward to putting that one in. I know that one will be on Spotify. Sometimes people give me answers, and I'm like, oh, I'm not sure I'm going to find that song on Spotify, but. <laughs> Pretty safely uh, assured that I can find that mm. Bowie. Yeah, that's great. Well, thank you so much, Frank, for joining You're me on today's welcome. show. It's been wonderful to have this conversation with you. And, yes, I it would be great maybe to catch up in the future sometime once you have been working with a few more patients. And uh, Yeah, no, we can, yeah. can do that. And, and thank you so much for your work. I think it's really important that we really talk about this, that it's not a stigma um, the, the more people talk about dying and, and the earlier they think about how they want to do that, the more natural it will become at some stage. Thank you. Kia ora. Okay, bye-bye. You're listening to Death Walker's Guide to Life with Kerry Sunderland and I've just been speaking with Frank Coopers. It's now time for Death on Screen and today I'd like to share with you some of Lucretia Seal's story. Her partner, Matt Vickers, wrote a fabulous book called Lucretia's Choice, which was published in 2016. But since our focus in this segment is on the screen, I'm going to introduce two videos available on YouTube. A 2015 interview with Lucretia on TVNZ Sunday program and the posthumous 2020 Lucretia Seals Memorial Lecture, which played a pivotal role in the campaign in support of the End of Life Choice Act referendum. So here's some of the backstory. In 2011, Lucretia was diagnosed with a brain tumour. When brain surgery, chemotherapy and radiotherapy didn't work, she took her case to the High Court in 2015. Essentially, she challenged New Zealand law for her right to die with the assistance of her GP and asked for a declaration that her GP would not risk conviction. Prior to getting ill, Lucretia worked for the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet and the Law Commission alongside Sir Geoffrey Palmer, so she had both the skills and connections to really make the case for physician-assisted dying in Aotearoa, New Zealand. In her statement of claim, Seals explained that 
I have accepted my terminal illness and manage it in hugely good spirits considering that it's robbing me of a full life. I can deal with that and deal with the fact that I am going to die, but I can't deal with the thought that I may have to suffer in a way that is unbearable and mortifying for me. I have lived my life as a fiercely independent and active person. I've always been very intellectually engaged with the world and with my work. For me, a slow and undignified death that does not reflect the life that I have led would be a terrible way for my good life to have to end. I want to be able to die with a sense of who I am and with a dignity and independence that represents the way I've always lived my life. I desperately want to be respected in my wish not to have to suffer unnecessarily at the end. I really want to be able to say goodbye well. Regrettably, it took another six years after her death in 2015 until physician-assisted dying became legal here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. But Lucretia left an amazing legacy. If you want to find out more about this legacy, you'll find links to both videos as well as other useful resources on my website. We've come to the end of today's show. You've been listening to Deathwalker's Guide to Life with Kerry Sunderland. Find out more about the show and catch up on previous episodes at deathwalkersguidetolife.com. Once again, Kamihi, a big thank you to Tasman District Creative Community Scheme for supporting the show. Matiwa. See you next time. podcast you just listened to was a live recording of a radio show first broadcast on fresh fm the top of the south's community access media station with support from new zealand on air the funding of access media makes these podcasts possible to find similar programs by other community access media stations go online to accessmedia.nz if you or your group would like to know more about how you can have a program on our station please contact us Visit our website freshfm.net for our contact details.